Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hack. Merry Christmas, everyone, except it's not because COVID's a bitch. But we're going to try and entertain you anyway, aren't we, Alina? We are. Merry Christmas, everyone. We're doing our best, but just <laughs> to 2020 now. Nearly over. 2020 is nearly Thank over. Christ for that. Anyway, who's with us today, Alina? Today we've got Louise Creechin, who is a Fellow of English Literature at the University of Strathclyde and a budding historian specialising in the Victorian era. And she's here to talk to us about something super Christmassy. Yay! Yay! What? I wasn't sure whether I could actually talk during that introduction. I was just like creeping in the background, just like... <laughs> um, On a scale of one to infinity, how, how excited about Christmas are you this year? I mean, I think we, before we started recording, you guys were like, oh, fake it. So I'm going to say infinity, um, which you can probably tell by my voice um, that I am super excited and super Christmas and I'm basically an elf. Like, yeah. And yeah. in reality, you don't give a crap about Christmas. Uh, you oh, just finish your book on time, hell. don't you? Pretty much, yeah. Um, so yeah, so that, that, that was really nice of the press that I'm kind of begging to publish my book, being like, oh yeah, we're really interested. It's almost a full manuscript in January. And I'm like, Merry Christmas, guys. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is this month that they asked me that. So I'm just like, Great, uh, you're wonderful. Yeah. I mean, to, be, to be fair, it's kind of my fault because I was like, in my proposal, I was like, oh yeah, I can totally be ready really quickly. Please pick me, pick me. Uh, and then now nah, I live to regret it. Um, but <laughs> it's so we're fine. just fogging your time at this point. We are going to talk about Charles Dickens and sort of angle it towards a Christmas carol, aren't we? I, I mean, why else would you ask someone to talk about Dickens at this time of year? I mean, it's... You're not going to do a treatise on hard times, are you? Yeah, I mean, I could, um, but I don't really like that one, so it's... Oh, I had to read that for A-Level and it was like, why are you putting me through this? It's just depressing. I know life was shit in industrial yeah, Victorian yeah, but England, but I don't need to read about it for 300 yeah. pages. Oh, Some of them good. I Some like of them are brilliant, but Hard Times is not one of them. Great I Expectations think... is my favourite. Oh, oh, I see. And <laughs> <laughs> that's Louise not agreeing with you. <laughs> no, that, like to be fair, I, I do like great expectations, but um, I just I can't get over how much I hate Pip. I just say it's cool to swear on the podcast because I I just hate this guy so much. He's such a title twat, and um, 
I just I can't get over that, and it just it changes my whole perception of the novel. Like I, I just can't. Yeah, this is what's happened to me. We were talking before we come on air. It's what's happened to me with Gavin and Stacey. As uh, I'm a few years older, I look at her and I think, hang on, someone else is paying for your wedding, your rent. You just lie around whinging and complaining about living in a mansion. You're actually just a dick. (laughs) Exactly. Same with Pip. Pip is just the worst. He's just like, oh, guys, I've got a mysterious benefactor and it just all lands in my lap. Like, Pip for me is like the essential sort of entitled white man that just gets it a straight white man that just gets everything just handed to him for no reason he's not like he's not special like he fucking thinks he is throwing that i totally totally um understand miss havisham now i can totally relate to <laughs> i am miss havisham <laughs> i am now miss havisham i've gotten to that point in my life when i was reading this when i was younger I was like, yeah. Do you know what? I, I love the idea of Alina walking around the fields with her two dogs in Poland in a, in a wedding dress. Yeah. <laughs> I, think, I think that's a sign. I mean, you know, once you hit 30 or whatever, or just like, I don't know how old you guys are. I'm just presuming you're about the same age as me. And you, you just, you get to the point where Miss Havisham is the most sensible character in that book. And <laughs> it's so it's true. Like, you're like you're the only one who's not crazy. Yeah, and the bit that I just I really hate about Pip is um, when uh, Joe Gardry learns to read. So I, I work primarily on illiteracy and learning difficulty in Victorian novels. So you know when he learns to read and Pip just cries. He's like, "Oh, Joe, you've come on so much. I just cry because you've learned to read." And just like that is a grown ass man that's basically your father. Fuck off, Pip. Like, you're such a patronising twat. <laughs> he also just saved your life. And then you're crying because, oh, he knew to read how special, how precious. And you're just like, just, oh, I hate him so much. But I think one of the problems with Dickens as well is, is that, like, if you want to enjoy Dickens, you have to invest all the time in the land. Like, the best novels are the long ones. Like, yep. I mean, that's most of them. But, you know... Our mutual friend, Bleak House, are just awesome. But the thing is, is that people, I think, get put off Dickens because at school, you read the short ones. And the short ones are your hard times and maybe great expectations. And frankly, they're shite. <laughs> like, that's, so I think, I think that's why people are like, oh, I don't know if I like Dickens because they, they just get exposed to the shit ones. In, in my opinion. Yeah, that's definitely right, isn't it? Because he's got a lot to say as, like, a social commentator of the day. And I'm guessing you find, like, as or not just you with uh, what you research, but Victorian historians can find a lot in his novel to support or deny what they're writing about. But I guess let's just start for... We have a lot of listeners that aren't British, um, and I'm guessing they've all heard of Charles Dickens. But who was he? Where was he from? And how did he end up a writer? Okay, so Charles Dickens was born in uh, Portsmouth, but he, uh, the, his childhood was one where, where he was kind of plucked out of school and he went to work in the factories. And so when David Copperfield has this kind of upbringing where he um, ends up sort of in poverty and working really hard, that was Dickens. And then he learned, then he started working as a clerk um and that's when he sort of started writing and then he started publishing um under the pseudonym Boz um and he just sketches from Boz and then his first sort of big success was the Pickwick Papers in 
1837 and basically throughout his career that that was just enormously successful and throughout his career um the Victorian public was just always waiting for the next Pickwick um because it was kind of funny and comic but it was always something that Dickens had to sort of wrestle with because he he wanted so Pickwick's really silly it's 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 you know um sort of four pompous guys that go on these research trips around the country and then just because they're just so kind of over read and over academic they just get into loads of scrapes um and they but it doesn't have as much as the sort of social commentaries as his later novels mm. and they basically victorian public although they still loved him they got a little bit pissed off they're always waiting for the next pickwick um which never came <laughs> Could you just um, explain to people the serialisation aspect of, of how his stories got out there um, for those that don't know about the magazines? Yeah, sure. So um, what would happen is that Dickens would publish um, sort of serially, so either weekly or monthly, it depends on the novel itself. And so it was kind of in this... This is like sort of patronising, but it's totally true. It's kind of like the sort of soap opera of the day type thing. Like people would get the next issue, and he'd sort of leave it on a little bit of maybe a cliffhanger, and then he'd and then you'd you sort of in, invite other characters. So it's sort of function a bit like a a, a a bit like a soap opera, and the you'd be waiting for your next instalment, and um, that way he sort of wrote very long novels. It's a myth that he got paid by the word, and that's why they're long. Um, but he definitely did sort of, sort of run serials that would go on for like a year, year and a half. Um, so that would sort of keep people interested. And also at the same time, he would have... Um, so he wasn't just producing novels, but he, he had editorship of two um, periodical presses. So, um, well, he had more than that, but like the two big ones were um, All Year Round and um household words i get sometimes i get confused and call it household worlds because it's all the year round all the world right and i get yeah but it is <laughs> all the year round and household words and i have to like i always have to kind of control f when i'm writing on that because i i definitely type it wrong um, <laughs> but apparently that's the thing because i put it on twitter and loads of victorianists were just like oh my god yes and i was like oh i thought it was just me being funny but apparently it's more of a thing um <laughs> Yeah, it's just like, oh, I'm not an idiot. Um, I mean, I don't know about you guys, but the only reason I pursued uh, an academic sort of life was to prove that I wasn't an idiot. I just took it a bit too far. Um, <laughs> no, I, I totally agree with that. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, Living uh, that one. Fucking hell. Like, <laughs> like, because I'm dyslexic, uh, it was just a case of like, it's a running joke because I worked on illiteracy that I only did a PhD to prove that I could read, um, which is just stupid. I'm pretty <laughs> sure totally I, I'm only going to go down that road so I can call myself a Dr. Alex. So uh, Exactly. And I mean, I think um, when this is recorded, we've, we've just had that thing from, oh God, what was the publication? Was it the Wall Street Journal? You, have you seen One that of the case? American ones. Yeah, yeah. With uh, Jill Biden getting slated for using Dr. Biden. It's just like, no, she fucking earned it. Yeah. Out your mouth. Um, and I don't think they'd be that fussed if it was a male, a male no. first, first man. Um, so yeah, just, sorry. I don't know what I was ranting about then. Um, 
Okay, don't worry. I know, I know you've got some random facts for us about uh, Charles Dickens because we had a laugh about him before. So, um, oh yeah, I mean, who's that? Oh, he's a total knock. Like, so I do stand up set about Dickens, and basically the butt of every joke is to call him Dick and then pause and say ends really quietly. So, I mean, I do think he was a dick, um, but it doesn't stop me from you know researching him. So. Charles Dickens had a pet raven, because obviously, and um, his name is Grip. And um, to this day, um, there's always a raven in the Tower of London called Grip, um, thanks to Charles Dickens. He had it stuffed, and I think it's in Philadelphia somewhere. I can't quite remember, but the Grip is somewhere still taxidermied. And um, supposedly... But it's one of those sort of supposedly sort of facts. Um, Dickens's pet raven was the um, influence for um, Edgar Allan Poe's The Raven. Um, so yeah, so Dickens had a pet raven because he's a knob. And one of my favourite facts about Dickens, which I don't think people um, talk about enough, is that um, so he's an absolute arsehole with his wife. Um, sort of fell out of love with her or you know, had had an affair with the actress Ellen Turney and um but what he did but I mean it was uncovered like about a couple of years ago that he had tried once they'd separated to have her thrown into an asylum for no reason really, just because Victorians and patriarchy. Um so we know that he did that, he sort of conspired and then the doctor was like, uh she's not mad, fuck off. Um which for the nineteenth century is like Oh, you. Yeah, um, yeah, that's really progressive, isn't it? Because that was just basically a standard way of ditching your wife, right? If you had pretty much. Money. Pretty much, yeah. Um, I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it's just, yeah, it's, it's one of those things that just kind of comes to the territory in the 19th century. And, um, but my favourite thing that happened uh, with Charles Dickens and his wife is that when he decided that he wanted to separate, he didn't like just move out the house, didn't move her out initially. I mean, he did later on, but he sent her away for the weekend and uh, built a wall in the middle of their bedroom to sort of annex her out, um, which, you know, is kind of the ultimate patriarchal power move, like just building a wall. Like That's horrific. <laughs> I, I love that idea. I'm so I mean, sorry. Yeah. I'm just finding it hilarious. There's massive Trumpian echoes there, like. Yeah, fuck you! I'm gonna build a wall. That's horrific. Can you imagine coming back from like a weekend away and your husband's built a wall down the middle of the bedroom? I I, I don't think enough people talk about that, but it is like my favourite sort of. At this point, would you not be like, just divorce me and give me half your money, and I'm gone? I mean, it was a little bit early for actual rights. That was the problem. Um, Yeah, no, no divorce law. Are we still in the point as well where women's property just becomes their husbands, aren't we? Is it not till the 1850s, right, that changes? Yeah, so 1853 is the first Matrimonial Causes Act, but that one is still really loaded and they don't get much of the property. They they can only divorce. um, So women have to prove two grounds on which they can divorce, and it can only be, I think it's... um, neglect and um desertion but so no cruelty no. yeah it's, it's, it's no cruelty and adultery adultery is one that they can do but they have to prove sort of two grounds whereas men can just prove like proof and in very commas accuse their wife of adultery or like 
on so they can so guys can get a divorce on one ground, women have to prove two grounds and they don't get their property back. That gets amended later on. Um but aye, it's uh, it's still in the those joyful sort of halcyon days of fuck all rights for married women. So um So she's basically stuck with him. It yeah. was actual separation, literal separation. Yeah, physical separation between the two, which yeah, like I say, I don't think enough people talk about that because I just find that, like, what crosses your mind? Like, what sort of privilege have you got to have to think, oh... Did it's okay to treat a woman a wall. like that? Yeah, like, just build a wall. Like, I mean, I just think because it's it's such a sort of... It's the most passive-aggressive but also very aggressive move. It's like, you know, not that I'm advocating for anything like that. It's not like he's sort of... He's, he's physically assaulted her or anything. He's just, like built a physical wall like what the fuck yeah. like, <laughs> you know oh like, God. like it, it, it's I mean obviously I'm not sort of comparing it but it's, it's almost worse because it's just so outrageous but it's emotional like, abuse isn't it what? I mean if you called the police on your husband and said he'd done that and the police turned up and saw that today they would be like dude what the fuck yeah, but I think uh, I think if they did it then, I mean, they didn't have proper police yet, but it would just be a case of like, lol. <laughs> like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, what a lad. <laughs> so, oh, well, let's abandon him as a person because I've decided I really don't like him now, um, and talk about possibly one of the most famous Christmas stories in history. Yeah, I think I don't think there's anything that really. I mean, maybe the nativity, but <laughs> other nah. than. Nah, nah, nah. I think I think the cultural echoes of uh, <laughs> the TV is just not realistic enough. No, not really. I mean, for fuck's <laughs> sake, you know, <laughs> stable um, angels, shepherds. Yeah, it's a bit far fetched. Do you know what? There was a, a clarifying moment as an agnostic when I watched that Russell Crowe film Noah, and I sat there and I thought, this plot's just rubbish. And then I thought, oh my god, it's the Bible. Yeah. And one of the things that I find really funny is, like, sorry, this is not dick-insulated, but, like, you know, how angels in the Bible, and historically, angels are meant to have, like, seven eyes and shit. Like, so when they turn up and see the shepherds, they're not, like, cherubic or anything. They're just, like, if you read the Bible version, yeah, they've got, like, seven eyes. So, like, (laughs) um, um, of course they're saying, do not be afraid. I mean, frankly, I mean... Who wouldn't be afraid? Yeah, I'd be absolutely shit myself. But that's not Dickens. Um, so, I mean, Dickens, we're talking about ghosts, really. So ghosts and Christmas in um, so the te- Dickensian ma- imagination are completely interlinked. I mean, there's a huge sort of thing about the Christmas ghost story. And a lot of a lot of people will sort of attribute that to Dickens in general. I mean, other folk were writing ghost stories. So A Christmas Carol is the one. And... Basically, every year since, he tries to best himself. Um, so in these publications all the year round and household words, there's always been like a bumper Christmas edition. It's kind of like your annual, you know, um, that would be like your bumper edition. So there, so there's a lot of pressure on Dickens to try and sort of beat A Christmas Carol, like, with, uh, like the chimes, which is technically new year but like again ghosts and um sort of festive season i'm kind of hoping now that he never and that he spent his life in complete futility trying to do it better pretty much yeah. got one for the wife yeah pretty much yeah like he he didn't really ever best it. they just wanted christmas carol is, is the one and obviously it's the one that most people know like we see so many 
adaptations and it's 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 kind of yeah i mean other than the actual nativity i i would say that it's 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 the one that most people know even if they don't really know dickens that you know so many like even sitcoms and you know crappy films will use that structure um of you know you getting visited by the four ghosts and um you know changing your ways i actually read before i came on here um the onion has a great article out at the minute obviously it's a satirical news you know it's always bullshit and the onion claimed that oxford academics had found an early copy of uh, a christmas carol uh, in which the four ghosts beat the shit out of scrooge and yell, uh, this one's for Tiny Tim, bitch. Um, so <laughs> I was like, I want to read that one. Like, um, you, know, fun. you know, when it's like 2020 and like the onion and the daily mash is like, makes sense. Like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> this is how low we've sunk this year. Yeah. It's like, what is satire? I don't even know. I choose to believe this now. <laughs> You've mentioned Tiny Tim. Uh, what does he represent? We're meant to sort of feel a lot of love and, um, you know, a meant sort of good feeling towards fellow man with Tiny Tim because he is a cripple using the 19th century terminology. And, you know, but he still loves everyone. Merry Christmas and all that crap. But um, what's really interesting about Tiny Tim uh, is that he's kind of one of the foundational figures that people in disability studies look at for how disability has been represented in culture. So um, there's a huge sort of body of thought um, in disability studies. We call it narrative prosthesis. So it's basically when a character's disability is used as sort of for its metaphorical resonance, resonances to um, kind of shortcut the narrative. So it works like a prosthetic limb. So there's a, it's like a narrative shortcut. So when Tiny Tim says, oh, it was wonderful to be in church because all the people will look at me and then remember the person who made beggars, you know, blind beggars see and and, and uh, lame beggars walk and all that. So basically, looking at my disabled body makes everyone remember Christ. So there's that horrible thing of like, this sort of embodied, oh, you know, I'm not a person, I'm just a thing that allows you you Christian onlooker to remember Christ. So it, it, it's deeply, deeply problematic. But that sort of dynamic is what happens a lot with disabled characters in literature. So you'll either have your, you know, your sort of waif-like, unimpeachable um, characters, like your tiny Tims and, you know, your, your, your absolute innocence, but they're just a bit weak. Uh, or you'll have, like, your grotesque disabled people, like, I don't know, Quillip in old curiosity shop is just like an evil dwarf like so it, it's uh, tiny tim's been used as like one of the figures for thinking well beginning to think about how disability is used as a device in literature so yeah he um basically that there's no discernible personality for tiny tim other than you know he's very pious and and loves yeah. the fact that people he, see- so he just exists to be disabled Pretty much, yeah, he exists to be disabled, and by existing to be disabled, people can remember Jesus. Um, but not him, just just the people looking at him can remember Jesus. It's so, like some cheap way of vindicating his existence as a cripple, like you say in, in Victorian terminology, where, well, well, at least I make people religious. Yeah, exactly. 
Does, is A Christmas Carol, did he steal ideas from it? Because we know, like, Shakespeare thieved everything from everyone. Did Dickens use any existing sort of tools or character, like, sketches to put it together? Or is it completely original? Now, I'm going to sound like an idiot here, but not that I'm aware of. Yeah, obviously, like, you kind of read everything in Victorian literature. But has anyone um, ever sort of said, well, I'm holding this up and it looks like he kind of plagiarised or... I mean, I think when you have a popular author that people are always trying to look for, oh, they're not that good. Um, I know that, on the other hand, people plagiarise Dickens all the time. Like, sometimes even before he'd finished um the novel that there would be someone would write um someone would write like a version where they would just finish the novel because it wasn't out yet because of the serialization so they'd just put it on the stage and guess the ending oh Um, that's mean yeah yeah it's like game of thrones and that didn't end well did it uh, exactly or like um but there would be just really really callous or not callous but really brazen about how they would do it so like um e lloyd was like a publisher that did a lot of penny dreadfuls so like the original sweeney todd and, and and all that sort of stuff like basically really trashy literature and he would do things like publish like days after dickens had but change the name slightly so instead of oliver twist it was oliver twist <laughs> it's just like so obvious plagiarised basically well we had someone on didn't we talking about um, plagiarism and copyright and how it was so cavalier at this time like with the cut and paste journalism we're like oh I, I like that story I'm using it and it was yeah. like just the way it works pretty cut much. and paste Dickens yeah pretty much I mean Dickens is always raging about it because obviously you know he, he wants his credit so um, to actually answer your question I think it was dickens but i mean you know this is when someone's gonna um pipe up and be like oh actually um yeah but um be interesting if they do actually Hmm. because we're not sitting here professing to know are we we're just saying like to our knowledge no one has sort of said oh well if you read this someone else did it five years before be interested if anyone does come up with anything actually yeah i I think it's generally accepted that Dickens sort of has his own ideas, whereas Shakespeare always gets that, oh, well, he nicked it, um, slack. But I think generally speaking, people do credit Dickens with most of this stuff. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. 
So you've got to have your favourite adaptation. Mine is The Muppets. Uh, the Muppets is the definitive adaptation. Like, full stop, that's it, done. Done. Um, it, the thing about The Muppets on it, which is really awesome, is that a lot of Dickens fellows, and I mean, yeah, I'm, t- I'm chatting to you about Dickens, but I work on a lot of authors because I, I mainly work on um, disability and illiteracy, and that's like, but Dickens does a lot of that. But um, my uh, a lot of real hardcore Dickensians say it's the Muppets one. And the reason for that is that when you watch the Muppets one, um, Gonzo's narration is, so much of it is verbatim from the Dickens. And also just the sort of whimsical nature of the Muppets and um, a lot of the sort of just stupid characterization as well of... I mean, I'm talking about characterization of puppets, so I'm a little bit confused. But uh, <laughs> Roll with it. It's like the yeah. least weird thing we've had on History Hack. Yeah, it's fine. But, like, they really get the sort of whimsical self-awareness of the Dickens, like the, the sort of whimsy that I think, I mean, the, the recent um, Ianucci, I can't say it, um, David Copperfield got that as well, just this, the stupidity and the the, the, the winking um, at the audience when you have the, the, the particularly the, um, the characters that aren't the main character. I'm a literary scholar, I promise. Um, the, uh, like, you're, you know, your additional cast, like, they... they, they the Muppets really understand, like, when you have Rizzle the Rat, like, making these stupid comments. Like, those are the sort of things that you think would be... There's, there's, a, there's a stupid pun about uh, more grave than gravy. No, more gravy than grave, sorry. That makes more sense. Um, and that is verbatim. That's from the Dickens. Like, I mean, and they acknowledge that that's a shit pun. But, like, Dickens would probably have acknowledged that, that was a shit pun. You know, you know the two old guys that just—I I never remember the Muppets' names, but the ones that I love them. Marley and Marley. Yeah, yeah, but but it's them that make that stupid pun, and it's Marley, like it's, it's Scrooge that says that to Marley, and they're like, "Oh, good one!" And but that's the sort of thing that Dickens would have sort of been at, like as well. He would have been like, huh, "Pun." Um, so it's like the Muppets really understand that, um, which just make it the best version, um, in my opinion, because I think there's always these stupid attempts as well to modernize dickens or not just modernize but like improve yeah improve or like make the darker version like the, the adaptation last year was all this sort of darker version and it was just shite like um they had you know the big there's a huge uproar because um scrooge said fuck and you're just like okay well if you're wanting to make it darker then maybe probably would have said fuck he doesn't in the novel, but maybe he would if you're trying to be gritty and coarse. But there was such... It's the first thing that would come out of my mouth if a ghost turned up on my doorstep. Oh, yeah, like, some your dead pal's face, like, in your door knocker, you're going to, like, I mean, yeah, fuck would probably be my only response. <laughs> exactly. Be, what the fuck is this? There definitely would be an F in there. Um, but, yeah, the, um, the most recent adaptation... People have this huge fit about using fuck in a Dickens adaptation because the thing, the problem, the problem with Dickens as well is that people see it as being like so canon, so pure. It is like top notch literature. How dare you sully it by using fuck? But actually, you know, everyone in the Victorian period was reading Dickens. If you couldn't read, then you'd have someone read it to you. Like he was huge, but he like. That soap opera analogy that I used earlier, it was true. Like, 
everyone was reading it and it wasn't a case of like only the erudite educated would be reading it so actually you know what he was writing now i'm sure it would use fuck like it's the problem with looking at things like dickens is that people think that you know there's such cultural capital attached to it that you can't say that something was shy or you can't you can't change it and it's just uh it's just silly um sorry bit of a rant about that but, uh, <laughs> what other adaptations do you like I am a huge, huge musical theatre fan. Like, I love musicals. It's a constant side project of mine is working on uh, literary adaptations of musicals because I find it so interesting. And as a Victorianist, so many 19th century novels end up on the Broadway stage. So including Dickens. Um, obviously, we all know, like, Oliver, um, which isn't the best uh, musical adaptation. The, the best musical adaptation of Dickens is The Mystery of Edmund Drood, which is obscure, um, but it's his um, unfinished novel, and it was on Broadway in the 80s. Um, basically, what happens is, so Dickens dies before the end of um, writing the actual original novel. So in the musical, because Dickens dies, um, it's done like really, really tongue-in-cheek, so like, um, it's a Victorian music hall putting on the mystery of Edwin Drood. And um, so I managed to trick a funding body into letting me put on this musical and paying for it. Idiot. Uh, <laughs> genius. That is genius. Uh, because I was like going to engage the Glasgow public in the mystery of Edwin Drood, the unfinished novel. Um, I then managed to get the US Embassy to fund me to put on the musical of Little Women because, again, fools. Um, but sort of using musical theatre as a pedagogical tool and an experiment, and um, which actually worked really well. Um, so I take the piss out of it because they funded it, but equally, I think it was valid. But anyway, um, so the Mystery Ireland Drew musical, so it's like really tongue-in-cheek. It's actors putting on the show. And um, what happens is you will be mid-song and you make this massive, you sing out this massive declaration and you sort of say, the truth is this. And I'm not going to sing uh, on this podcast, um, but, you know, say the truth is this. And then the orchestra stops playing and they'd like, have to like drop their instruments and shit. And um, and then the chairman of the music hall turns around and is like, ladies and gentlemen, this is the point in our story where Charles Dickens laid down his pen forever. Because Dickens dies. Mm. We don't know how the fuck to finish this show. So right in the middle of the musical, they ask the audience to vote for it. Uh, so what happens is, is that you are stood on stage and the audience has to vote for the identity of the detective, the murderer and the two lovers at the end, because obviously it's, it's, it's a musical, so it has to end with uh, some sort of love scene. And um, you can be literally standing on stage, like not knowing if you're going to get your solo, uh, which obviously is all I cared about at the time. Yeah, um, hell yeah. As a musical yeah. theatre person, I'd be like, dude, if I don't get the, the be the centre of attention at the end of this, I'm yeah. going to be pissed. For, yeah. um, and, <laughs> vote uh, for me! Vote for me! Vote for me! Please, please, God! Um, and, uh, yeah, so there's over, like, 400 different combinations that could happen. Um, but it, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's absolutely ridiculous. So, like, and that, again, like the Muppets, I think the best adaptations are the most ridiculous ones, but they use verbatim Dickens. So, so much of that musical, even though they take the piss out of it, it's absolutely in the, in the novel itself. So, like, so I probably should mention that, um, Edmund Drude goes missing on Christmas Eve 
Uh, so, you know, back to Christmas. i got two words for you. Dolly Parton. <laughs> <laughs> I love Dolly Parton so much. Um, yeah, so Dolly's latest offering, I mean, other than, you know, just generally saving the world through funding COVID vaccinations and having this insane literacy program in Tennessee and just having your own Dollywood theme park and just all the all the amazing things about Dolly Parton. Other than that, she also saved Christmas um, because her Netflix adaptation, Christmas on Square, is out. Now, it is the most terrible thing I think I've seen this year, but that's what makes it amazing. And the thing about um, Christmas on Square is that it doesn't follow A Christmas Carol like really, really strictly. But you can see that even through Dolly Parton, A Christmas Carol is being used massively. So they, it sort of demonstrates like how far-reaching the sort of Dickensian versions are. So as we had Tiny Tim before, oh, he's a cripple, it's so sad. Oh. Um, the the protagonist in, um, he's played by Christine Baranski, um, who obviously did Mamma Mia and lots of other musicals, so she's great. Um, she sort of has this big um, epiphany because this child who she sort of has a bit of a conversation with and, and the child doesn't realise that she's the big baddie and the child gets hit by a car and her being in hospital is the big thing that changes the character's mind. And it's this whole thing of, oh, let's sort of disable a child and then have the revelation. So um, I love Dolly Parton, but I, I got very frustrated about that. Um, but, you know, the sort of the echoes of the sort of rags to riches um, stuff, that, that sort of storyline that comes into Dickens as well, is really present through sort of Dolly Parton's work, this, this sort of notion about, like, poverty, but you can come good. So um, there's like that song about uh, having a coat of many colours and all that thing about sort of being poor, but then making something of oneself. That's such a thing in Dickens. It's a thing in David Copperfield. It's a thing in Great Expectations. Obviously, I've ranted about how much I hate Pip, but that sort of thing is totally true. So for me, it doesn't, it's not um, insignificant that Dolly is playing with a lot of um, a lot of Dickensian tropes in her um, really schmaltzy, really terrible uh, Christmas musical this year. Um, yes. So another adaptation like that's Blackadder, isn't it? Yeah, I, it's been a long time since I saw it. Um, but yeah, no, totally. Um, this is Blackadder back and forth, isn't it? The special that they did. Is that the one where they, they go in and out of sort of different time periods? Yeah, so yeah, I think it's like basically a Christmas carol based, isn't it? But then they're like time travelling. Yeah, because I think, isn't that the one where like Shakespeare is no longer Shakespeare? He, uh, he, he, he's the inventor of the biro because Blackadder leaves him with the biro. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, Stephen Fry's, uh, Wellington, isn't he? Yes, yeah. No, I, I remember that. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's used to like so many cultural things. I mean, I'm, sh- I mean, there's also the, um, the Mickey Mouse Christmas Carol, which I used to watch when I was a kid. 
Um, oh, I'd which, forgotten about that one. Yeah, because that, that scarred me because I was terrified of their sort of ghost of Christmas yet to come. Um, it was like, uh, you know, that the sort of perpetual ballet, ballet, baddie in the Mickey Mouse University, um, Pete. He's, I can see in Boat Willie, like the very first one, this big, big scary, but I was absolutely terrified. Like, like, I used to turn it off before that point. Um, but yeah, no, it's, it's a joke that's been used throughout. And I think that it's a really sort of effective trope, this notion of to be a critical theory wanker, like the return of the repressed thing, you know, that, that, that sort of notion of return and visiting historical, um, sort of visiting memories and things that you have sort of kept down. And that that's the thing, that the, the, the ghosts themselves will not allow you to not realise the past and the errors of your way you, you you're not allowed to repress these sorts of feelings um so i think that's that's why it kind of works it really feeds into that almost like psychoanalytic sensibility that obviously dickens wasn't really aware of because it you know it's, it's, it's years before sort of psychoanalysis was a thing but i mean you've got that you can be a sort of a massive critical theory wanker about this stuff and you can also say ghosts are fun so that's why it works, you know, you can use it in so many contexts. I have the misfortune of looking very like the Ghost of Christmas Past from the Muppets version. Um, <laughs> so I, I feel a sort of affinity uh, with her uh, because, you know, she's sort of creepy Victorian child, ginger, blue eyes, which is my aesthetic. Um, so... <laughs> You mentioned the mystery of Edwin Drood. And yeah. So you said that he spent his whole career basically trying to outdo A Christmas Carol. What are some of the other Christmas stories he wrote? Um, they're not great. Um, and to be honest, it's been a while since I read them because, again, they're not great. Um, yeah, I will reread uh, Christmas Carol. Um, so there was also The Chimes, which is, I think, the following year. Um, Master Humphrey's Clock. Um, and then it's like, oh, this one that's like Christmas Ghost or something. So again, a lot of them try and use, um, ghosts and sort of, there's, there's one, uh, sort of the sexton and the goblin, is it called? I can't remember. But it's in the body of Pickwick Papers. The narrative just randomly pauses for like 30 pages when Dickens decides to write a, a sort of standalone Christmas story almost with goblins and shit. Um, so, yeah, so, I mean, if you want to look at them, it's, it's the chimes, Master Humphrey's clock, uh, the cricket on the hearth, but, meh, I wouldn't bother. Um, there are some ghosts, but yeah, that, like, I know this is a really crappy answer. Uh, um, <laughs> no, it's good. It's just, uh, I guess people have got the titles if they want to go and try them out, but the fact is, he never did better A Christmas Carol, did he? I don't think so. And I mean, um, Pete Orford, who um, is a Drudian sort of scholar in that, um, he has, uh, he's done quite a bit of work on about how Edwin Drood, because as I mentioned before, he goes missing at Christmas, is like Dickens' final fuck you to Christmas. Um, so he, he he's, uh, like, Pete gave a really great talk at um, Dickens' conference recently about how basically because Edwin Drood either is murdered or goes missing on Christmas Eve, that is Dickens being like, right, Christmas is done. Christmas is the worst and I am done with Christmas. You you trot me out every year. I've missed a fucking Christmas, but 
there you go. Edwin Drood is either dead or missing on Christmas Eve, and it's all your fault. Victorian <laughs> public. Uh, so Mic drop moment for Dickens. Yeah, yeah. so that, that that's Pete's kind of idea, which I'm hoping I'm representing properly. But yeah, they, he doesn't he doesn't ever get over Christmas Carol, and he doesn't ever beat it really. Um, and I think that's true looking at like Dickens and sort of culture now. People know Christmas Carol before they know even like Oliver, and Oliver has a massive sort of cultural cachet. I don't know how I'm going to live with not liking Charles Dickens anymore. Like I just thought he was pretty much meh. I didn't didn't know he was a dick basically. So I researched his grandson actually for the Eton book. He was a very good cellist. He was killed on the Somme in September 16. If you want to go and see him, he's on the Teepvale Memorial. If you want to go see Dickens, he's buried in Westminster Abbey, which he didn't want to be. Like, they, they put him in Poets Corner and he really didn't want to be there. So. Well, that makes me kind of happy, though. That's for the wall. Yeah, that's... Fuck you. You're in your own wall now. Yeah. <laughs> You're walled in in yeah. a medieval abbey. Yeah. Into Poets Corner with you, you dick. Yeah. Um, <laughs> hopefully we won't get visited tonight by... Uh, any spirits? Yeah. <laughs> the ghost of Dickens. Ghost of Dickens. <laughs> Dickens in my doorknob. No, thank you. Louise, that was absolutely epic. Cheers for that. Just because I was rambling. <laughs> yeah. I love a good ramble. History Hack loves a good ramble, and we're all about the tangents and the rabbit holes as well, so it's been great. Cheers. Thanks so much for having me. Join us a bit later. Owen Staten is back. He's going to give us some more Welsh folklore with a Christmassy theme this time, so don't miss out on that one. And then on Christmas Day, when you have had enough of presents and turkey and not being able to hang out with everybody because of COVID, uh, we have a treat for you. We have another Sharp reunion. This time it's the cast of Sharp's Company, so don't miss that. It's a brilliant lineup, and we had loads of fun and then on boxing day when you really have had enough join us in the afternoon when we will be talking to merrin waters all about a very christmasy world war ii battle that's the battle of ortona so don't miss that one and then in the evening join us down the pub when we will um regale you with our christmas special we have played secret santa currently all of the regulars have packages sitting at their house with what we assume will be hilarity inside and they will open them live on air and we are also going to play another we're going to play a game we are going to play a game whereby everybody gets allocated much like secret santa someone else in the pub and they've got to cast them as historical characters for a theoretical panto so join us as we basically burn each other for a couple of hours uh, for your amusement don't forget that we do exist on patreon as history hack and on patreon as well which is podbean's own version uh, elena and i have had massive fun doing this in 2020 uh, but life's going to change quite a lot next year and we're going to actually have to go and earn a living etc if we want to keep up the regularity that we've been bringing you and the kind of guests that we've been bringing you and the workload then we will need your help so uh, if you join there's going to be incentives for joining on either of those platforms. We're revamping ourselves on both of them. So don't forget to go in. You can do as little as a dollar a month and it all goes towards keeping up History Hack as regular as we've been able to bring it to you this year. We are now on YouTube. We are posting all of our new episodes on there and we have our own channel and we are gradually posting all of the back episodes because we have been made aware of the fact that you can only find the last hundred on some platforms. So you can go and listen to your heart's content and laugh at the cartoons and have a great time. So do go over there and subscribe. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. 
If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.